we have a, a, a lot of material to cover. Uh, and so we're going to be moving at the speed of light at times and then other times moving very slowly. I have lots of, uh, lots of quotes. Uh, I wanted to make it so that the individuals that I mentioned to you get to speak for themselves, that you get to hear their words. And so we may be covering uh, hundreds of years in a matter of seconds and then stopping to then read a long quote from someone. So that's what you have uh, in store for you. Uh, so our topic, uh, <clears throat> history of Christianity and economics, when I was first confronted with that, uh, I just thought it was so daunting. And uh, when I started to prepare for it, I just kept going in, in a variety of different directions. There's just so much that, that you can cover with such a topic. And so uh, I oftentimes found myself getting bogged down in some of the minutia, some of the, 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 the academic debates in the economic discipline. And I've tried to refrain from, from diving into those and trying to keep it at the level that I think will best serve you and benefit you. So that's my prayer that, uh, that I indeed prepared this, uh, this presentation uh, along those lines. But, but let's go ahead and, and jump in and see if I've been successful in that. So, to keep it rather simple, I want to start off with this graph. <clears throat> And I want you to sort of uh, burn it into your memory, not all the details, but uh, in general, that uh, although you know, economists can come up with, with dozens of various economic systems, I just want to have in mind sort of the two polar opposites, that on one hand, you'll have a free market capitalistic economy at one end of the spectrum, and then on the other uh, kind of a planned uh, communal socialist economy. <clears throat> and that those are the two ends of the spectrum, and that there's a lot of real estate between those uh, two ends. And so as we begin our survey of the history of Christianity and economics, I want to just point out, first of all, that Christians are all over the spectrum that uh, you can go to places in America today and you can find individuals who, who believe that the best way in which they can sense that they are right with God and living as the Bible mandates is to, to be in sort, some sort of communal, pre-modern community, right? Think of the Amish, uh, for instance. But we can also go to some place in America and find individuals who call themselves Christians who don't feel that they're truly right with God unless they're being blessed by him materially, right? That that blessing of uh, that prosperity is viewed as a blessing of God upon them and that they are, they are well with God because they're doing well materially. So those are two opposite ends of the spectrum. And that's not new. We can see that in America today, but it's not new. We can go back 1,500 years and see a, a similar pattern that <clears throat> 1,500 years ago, there were individuals who thought the most godliest <clears throat> uh, Christians uh, were monks living in poverty, living communally in monasteries. But in that very same church 1,500 years ago, you also had Christians who thought those who were closest to God weren't necessarily as monks, but 
was a, a small group of people with a great deal of power and influence and wealth living in what we today call the Vatican. Right? So here you have this dichotomy. Who, who is the, the, the best possible Christian here on earth? Is it this impoverished monk living communally or is it this, the, the Pope and the cardinals and others who are living in splendor in medieval uh, Rome? So <clears throat> Christians have been all across uh, this spectrum, and so as we seek to survey church history, we're not going to be able to cover it all. We're not going to be able to cover everyone, but I want to focus on what I see as a, a few trends and a few patterns. So, But let's turn our attention to the church fathers as we go chronologically uh, in surveying church history. <clears throat> now, the, the church fathers called councils, held meetings, whenever they needed to address uh, some disputed question, some important matter. And they, uh, upon concluding those councils, issued creeds and, and proclamations, giving their answer to those questions, questions on the, the uh, humanity of Christ or the divinity of the Holy Spirit, right? We can read what the church fathers concluded about that, uh, the consensus that they reached. <clears throat> but when it comes to economics, uh, they didn't call any councils on that topic. They didn't issue any creeds or decrees uh, giving the Christian view of economics. And so when it comes to this task of trying to discern what is it that the early church leaders, the early Christian leaders thought about economics, uh, we had to resort to going through the extant writings of some of the early church fathers. That's the best that we can do. And so as I sort to survey primarily the secondary literature on that, I was not able to just go through all the writings of the church fathers, and I relied heavily on secondary writings. Uh, there were really two sort of questions that I saw scholars zeroing in on as they looked through the writings of the church fathers dealing with economic matters. The first question was this. Did the church fathers think the Christian thing to do is for Christians or others and or others to live communally, to share things in common? Or did they advocate what we today might call the possession of private property? So which was it? Where did the church fathers stand on that issue? And then the second question is somewhat related, but much more simple. <clears throat> Can a person be a Christian and also be wealthy? Will a wealthy person go to heaven? So those, <clears throat> those seem to be the two main questions that, that scholars looking at the early church fathers uh, sought to answer, uh, find answers to in those writings. And so let's just briefly survey some of those writings. <clears throat> we'll start off with those church fathers who seem to reject private property <clears throat> and who seriously doubted that a rich person could be saved. So let me give you some examples of, of church fathers saying things along those lines. First, we'll start with Ambrose. He says this, quote, when giving to a poor man... You are not giving him what, you, what is yours. Rather, you are paying him back what is his. Did you catch that? You're giving a poor person something. You're not giving him something of yours. You're paying back to him 
what is already his. Indeed, what is common to all, Ambrose said, and has been given to all to make you use of, you have usurped for yourself alone. So that was his view of those who had acquired for themselves wealth. The earth belongs to all, Ambrose proclaimed, and not only to the rich, yet those who do enjoy it are far fewer than those who do not. You are paying back, therefore, your debt. So that was his view of uh, a wealthy individual giving to the poor. Chrysostom, who uh, served as the Archbishop of Constantinople until 403 when he was run off by the emperor because of of his uh, many sermons uh, denouncing wealth, uh, sermons that the uh, uh, emperor wasn't very fond of. Chrysostom said this, And all this about mine and yours is bare words only and does not stand for things. For if you do but say the house is yours, it is a word without reality. Since the very air, earth, matter, are all the creators, and so are you too yourself. Then he goes on in a different uh, document, different writing. Let us learn that as, as often as we have not given alms, we shall be punished like those who have plundered. So not giving charity, you will be punished like a thief, as someone who has plundered. Then he says this, For what we possess is not personal property. It belongs to all. God generously gives all things that are much more necessary than money, such as air, water, fire, the sun, all such things. All these things are to be distributed equally to all. Mine and thine, these chilling words which introduce innumerable wars into the world should be eliminated from the church. Then the poor would not envy the rich because there would be no rich. Neither would the poor be despised by the rich for there would be no poor. All things would be in common. And Basil says this, If you are rich, how can you remain so? If you care for the poor, it would consume your wealth. When each one receives a little for one's needs, and when all owners distribute their means simultaneously for the care of the needy, no one will possess more than his neighbor. Yet it is plain that you have very many lands. Why? Because you have subordinated the relief and comfort of many to your own convenience. And so the more you abound in your riches, the more you are deficient in love. And now, Augustine. Blessed, therefore, are those who make room for the Lord, so as to not take pleasure in private property. So listen to this. It says, let us, therefore, abstain from the possessions of private property. But then he continues or from the love of it, if we cannot abstain from, from the possession. So he holds out as the ideal, abstain from private property. But if you can't do that, at least abstain from the love of it. And let us make room for the Lord, he concludes. Then he asks this, says, Do you think that a man is a Christian 
Here we're dealing with that question, can a rich man be a Christian? Do you think that a man is a Christian who nourishes no needy person with his bread, who refreshes no thirsty person with his wine, whose table no one shares, under whose roof no stranger abides, whose garments clothe no naked person, whose helping hands assist no pauper? Far be it that such a one should be called a child of God. So those are some some quotes from church fathers that uh, seem to come down on that side of, of of sharing things in common, of of everyone being equal in material goods, and of that rich person not being able to go to heaven. But then you have other church fathers who uh, say things a bit differently. Take a different position. We'll start with Lucius Lacinius, uh, who was a professor before being converted, and after his conversion became uh, Constantine's chief religious advisor. But in his book, uh, The Divine Institutes, Lacinius said this. It's not a, it's not a uh, wholehearted uh, uh, cheerleading, if you will, for private property, but he still sides with the holding of private property. He says, private property contains the matter of both vices and virtues. So it has its good and its bad. But he says this, <clears throat> but communal property sharing holds nothing but vices. You know, so he's coming down on the side of, if we try to live communally, that's not going to work. Uh, it's just full of vices, as he puts it. Clement of uh, Alexandria, who died in 215, and wrote the earliest document by a church father that we can find dealing with wealth, uh, said these things. He said, quote, The Lord therefore does not forbid us to be rich, but only to be rich unjustly and insatiably. So <clears throat> a rich man can be saved just as long as you are not uh, someone who got rich unjustly or you, in, you have an insatiable desire for riches. And then uh, in that earliest document that we have, it's, a, um, it's actually a sermon on Mark 10, uh, 17 through 31, the, uh, the rich young ruler. And in that, in that uh, sermon, when Jesus instructed the rich young ruler to sell his possessions, Clement asked this, what does Jesus mean by this? It is not, he says, as some hastily interpret it, a command that he should throw away what he possesses and renounce his wealth. What he is told to do is to banish from his soul notions about wealth, his attachment to it, his excessive desire for it, his morbid excitement over it, and his anxieties, those thorns of existence which choke the seed of true life. And then later in that same sermon, he says this, if God really wanted Christians to give everything away, why would, we, why would he have commanded us to feed the hungry and clothe the naked? No, God wants us to use wealth wisely, not abandon it. Money in itself is neither good nor bad, but we may put it to good or bad uses. If we are to use money wisely, we must get rid of evil desires which cloud our judgment. So let no man destroy wealth, destroy rather the passions of the soul, which are incompatible with the better use of wealth. Become good, and thus make good use of your riches. 
Hence, it is clear that when Jesus spoke of selling all one's possessions, he meant merely the renunciation of the passions of the soul. That's one way of interpreting the story of the rich young ruler. Augustine, so some of these church fathers can find themselves on both sides of the spectrum, right? So we're mentioning Augustine again. He uh, He says, rich Christians who although they possess riches but are not possessed by them, they have the hope of salvation. So can a rich man be saved? Augustine ultimately says yes, as long as they are not possessed by their riches. So these and other statements can give the impression that the church fathers disagreed on whether Christians should own private property or whether rich Christians could go to heaven. However, when you take the writings of the church fathers holistically and you read them in context, the scholarly consensus, not every single scholar agrees with this, but the scholarly consensus is that the church fathers acknowledge that Christians should and could possess private property, but that ultimately they should not view those possessions as being exclusively theirs and that they should be very generous with what they possess. So let's read some some, uh, quotes along those lines. Augustine said this. Let's see. No, no, so we're still there. Augustine said, When superfluous things are possessed, others' property is possessed. So anything above what you just need, anything that's superfluous, that is somebody else's property. That's no longer yours, is how Augustine's putting. So you have your own property, but what's beyond what you need, you should view as belonging to others. Basil, in his uh, sermon, I Will Pull Down My Barns, he addresses those who own property but deny doing any wrong because they merely hold fast to what is theirs. He says this. He asks such a man, did you give it to yourself to bring into life with you? Whence came the riches you have now? If you say from nowhere, you deny God. You ignore the creator and you are ungrateful to the giver. He then asks why some have wealth and others don't. And his answer is that some are rich so that you may win the reward of charitableness and faithful stewardship. And when is someone not being a good steward? It is when you keep for private use that which you were given for distribution. And one who does this he calls a thief. When someone strips a man of his clothes, we call him a thief. I'm quoting from Basil. And when one might clothe the naked but does not, should he not be given the same name, thief, is what he asks. Chrysostom, in one of his homilies on the Gospel of Matthew, says to his listeners with possessions that you are to share them with the poor and become a good steward of the things God has given you. So that brings us to uh, Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas uh, echoed this general sentiment that we see in the church fathers. And he best articulated, at least early on, what uh, the Catholics generally would call the universal destination of goods, what Protestants tend to just refer to as stewardship, the biblical doctrine of stewardship. 
and that this pretty much is the consensus of what the church fathers advocated when it came to wealth. So in short, Aquinas, echoing the church fathers, argued that all property originates with God, but that man is given dominion over material goods on earth by God to be used by man for the good of others. In order to properly use or steward material goods, man had to possess or own them. So Aquinas rejects communalism and the sharing of property and embraces private ownership, but a private ownership geared towards the needs and good of others. So Aquinas said this, man ought to possess external things, not as his own, external meaning superfluous or beyond what you need, but as common, so that to wit, he is ready to communicate them to others in their need. A sense of uh, stewardship and um, living simply. Daniel K. Finn, in a book I found helpful, uh, it's a survey of uh, Christian economic ethics. He reached the same conclusion. He said, however, if we consider all the writings of each of the church fathers, it is clear that they did not condemn personal ownership itself, but rather its abuse in hoarding. In general, the view of property ownership in the early church can be summarized by the following rule of thumb. If I have more than I need and you have less than you need, I am obliged to share my surplus with you because God has given the earth to humanity and my wealth to me to meet the needs of all. Not only is this conclusion supported by what the church fathers said, but it is evidenced in how they and those in the early church lived. We know that in the early church, uh, Christians uh, did not live communally. You have that description in Acts 2 and Acts 4. We're saying beyond that, that didn't, that didn't, did not continue. Now you have some statements to the contrary. <clears throat> uh, Justin, in the second century, uh, made this statement that we uh, who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have into common stock, giving you the impression that at least the Christians that uh, uh, he ran with uh, held things in common. And Tertullian, later in that same century, uh, said this, One in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us but our wives. Glad he included that last part. So you have these statements that give the impression that early Christians after the apostolic church lived in a communal fashion, but the evidence is not there for that. Despite uh, these two statements, what we know is that in the early church, most of the members of those churches possessed private property, but lived rather simply, frugally, and we get the impression rather generously, at least generous with one another. So, so the, what the church fathers said sort of matched the way in which we have discerned the early church lived. Now, what about 
how the church related to society beyond the walls of the church. <clears throat> well, one, it appears that generosity uh, extended beyond Christians. So uh, it appears that virtually all the bishops in the early church appointed deacons within the, the area that they presided over to provide services for the poor both in and out of the church. We know that a number of bishops, led by Basil, provided food, clothing, and housing to the poor, to travelers, to lepers, and to the sick. Constantine, we know, gave church gave the church money. The emperor was giving money to church leaders so that they could construct and operate hospitals to care for orphans, widows, and the poor. So while the ministry of the church extended to society as a whole, it appears that they had no expectation that the economic practices within the church should or could be embraced or imposed upon society in general. So uh, Chrysostom said this. I don't think I have this on PowerPoint. Yeah, I do. Okay. Says, uh, making the point, you know, what we might apply to ourselves, we don't expect to be imposed upon society as a whole, that we, we seek to have the emperor or the political leaders of our day impose this on others. Right? So he says, should we look to kings and princes to put right the inequalities between rich and poor? Should we require soldiers to come and seize the rich person's gold and distribute it among his destitute neighbors? Should we beg the emperor to impose a tax on the rich so great that it reduces them to the level of, of the poor and then to share the proceeds of that tax among everyone? Equality imposed by force would achieve nothing and do much harm, he concluded. <clears throat> so, again, Daniel K. Finn concludes, Although the fathers were highly critical of the prevailing individualistic view of private property ownership in the broader society, they did not call for abolishing it in favor of the system of common ownership of goods. So it's a the early Christian view of economics was we hold ourselves to one standard, but we have no expectation of imposing that or expecting that from society as a whole. So while it might be safe to say the church fathers did not consider Christians living communally and sharing things in common to be a biblical mandate, there is no denying that they encouraged uh, asceticism as an ideal. That appeal... The appeal of asceticism, of, of living um, basically in poverty, of giving things away, uh, that, the appeal of asceticism increased uh, in the 4th century after Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Those who sought to maybe portray genuine Christianity, to distinguish it from the, the more kind of civil religion Christianity that was developing in the Roman Empire under Constantine, uh, turn to monasticism, that that is where you would find genuine Christianity in the minds of some. And so it is then that you have the rise of Christian monasteries, of, of people going to live together in these monasteries, <clears throat> taking vows of poverty, taking their private possessions and pooling them together, holding them in common. <clears throat> Uh, 
the one irony of this move towards asceticism and monasticism is that it unintentionally, according to some scholars, like Rodney Stark, Baylor University sociologist, says that monasteries prove to be sort of seedbeds of capitalism. There's almost like an anti-capitalistic spirit that led people to go to monasteries to get out of the Roman economy, <clears throat> uh, but that in many ways they helped to make the Roman economy even more capitalistic than it was before. So Stark and others point out that um, monasteries proved to be um, very crucial, played a crucial role in, in many local economies. That when an economy faced a, suffered a setback due to a famine or something else, <clears throat> uh, that those who lived in that community looked to the monastery for help uh, in those times. That uh, monasteries were also the place to go, even in good times, uh, uh, when people were in need, either because of illness or uh, just out of um, material want. In addition, monasteries proved to be very productive economically, producing goods, producing uh, agricultural products, so good that they began to sell their excess goods and engage in sort of a market economy. And that in some communities, those monasteries were the engine of the local economy. So this... this uh, the irony of seeking to abstain from the economic system of the day sort of uh, brought them uh, closer into it ultimately. Um, <clears throat> so the what we see with the I'm going to I'm going to cover about a thousand years of medieval history here in about three seconds. Uh, what we see with the Catholic Church which dominates Christianity after Constantine, it, it is Christianity for the most part in the West, uh, is that they sort of stay on that trajectory set by the church fathers, a trajectory of accepting private property, uh, a kind of pseudo-capitalistic system. Capitalism uh, will form with time. <clears throat> and so uh, these, these monasteries were the exception to the rule. What the, where the church stood when it came to economic matters was generally in support of private property, but with the um, caveat that those in the system were to be generous with what they had. Okay. So, let's see, we will now move to Reformation. Okay. Like I said, uh, I'm not doing justice to what happened after Constantine uh, from Constantine to the Reformation, uh, but for the sake of time, let's move to the Reformation. <clears throat> In general, it is recognized that uh, Luther basically sanctioned the economic system of his day. Well, what was Luther's economic views? Not, they weren't much different than that uh, of the Catholic Church from which he came. Where he did blaze a new path economically was in his view of work, which he dignified, or some might say he sanctified. In short, he articulated what we call the doctrine of vocation, that all work can be meaningful and can be done to the glory of God, that work done honestly and well honors God and contributes not only to one's well-being, but to that of one's family and society. As Luther put it, 
uh, a cobbler, a smith, a peasant, each has the work and office of his trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. Further, everyone must benefit and serve every other by means of his own work or office, so that in this way many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community, just as all members of the body serve one another. <clears throat> so, so that's sort of where Luther, if he charted any new territory, it would be in this area. He certainly wasn't the first to articulate the doctrine of vocation. There were Catholic leaders who did so before him, but uh, he certainly um, emphasized it and is associated with it. But when it comes to the Reformation in economics, it is not Luther who is pointed to. It is Calvin whose name most often comes up. And why is that? It's not because Calvin embraced a completely different view of economics than Luther or, or even the Catholics before him. He didn't. Like most Christian leaders, Calvin basically embraced the concept of stewardship. So, <clears throat> here's a Wolfgang Grassel, who wrote a little book published by the Acton Institute that I would commend for you, just called Property. But he says you know, that Calvin's Reformed theology just kind of emphasized stewardship. <clears throat> and uh, Calvin himself, here's a quote for him that I won't read for you, but <clears throat> just showing that his economic views were in line with basically those who preceded him for the most part. Now, where Calvin did break ground, where he did chart new territory, was on the issue of uh, usury. <clears throat> or the charging of interest. Calvin, um, let's see, get my, based uh, in large part on his interpretation of the parable of the talents that we find in the New Testament, which speaks favorably of interest, in, in this case, the, uh, the paying of interest on deposits, that Calvin took that, um, that biblical story, uh, reason, and concluded that it was biblical, it was okay to charge interest. And that went against the grain of Christian history, of the Christian position on usury. All the church fathers virtually opposed usury. Ambrose went so far as to say if someone charges usury, he commits robbery. <clears throat> but as uh, J. Richards points out in his book, Money, Greed, and God, <clears throat> uh, the Christian world, no, okay, the Christian world, like the Roman world before, tended to see money as sterile, functioning only as a means of exchange, without any value in it of itself. So money just collected dust in such a situation. It's not until the development of a commercial economy around the 12th century where you begin to have a shortage of money, where you begin to have counterfeit money, <clears throat> that, that uh, money becomes important. The use of, of uh, bills of exchange becomes critical to a working economy. And so it soon dawned on people, Richard said, that money lent for capital was different from money lent 
to a poor neighbor out of need. And that when you look at biblical prohibitions on usury, and you find them in a number of places in the Old Testament, not in every instance, but in just most of the instances, it deals with the poor. That someone who is poor asks for a loan, under no circumstances should you charge them interest on that loan. <clears throat> and so what Calvin, kind of echoing what, what Jay Richard said here, says here, is that I mean, times changed and that loaning money is no longer a situation where you're just loaning to the poor. That's, but rather, it's part of the economic system. Uh, it, it no longer falls in the category of sin, of something going against biblical teaching. Richards and others point out Calvin wasn't the first to take this position. Uh, Catholic university professors, known as the scholastics, that some of them had taken this position uh, even before Calvin, starting in the 11th and 12th centuries. <clears throat> but that is with Calvin that the church's view on this matter doesn't change, but their policy changes. Okay. And that uh, the charging of interest, yeah, um, kind of the Christian sanctioning of that leads to the rise of banks and helps to promote commercialism, capitalism. So here's the church and its view on economy actually having an effect on economic matters. So Richard says this, the church didn't just suddenly decide that usury was okay. Rather, the church became much more precise in defining what usury is. Usury isn't charging interest on a loan to offset the risk of the loan and the cost of foregoing other uses of the money. Rather, what usury is, is is unjustly charging someone for a loan by exploiting them, particularly when they're in dire straits or in a position of weakness. So, I find it interesting that uh, here, just a this very month, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention's uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is kind of launching a campaign against sort of a modern-day form of usury, right? Um, uh, payday loans in particular, predatory lending. So that is what Calvin was saying. That is unbiblical, but not just the mere charging of interest of loans. And yeah. But it's not even... Calvin's position on usury that makes it so that when you talk about the Reformation and economics in the same context, that it's his name that comes up more than any other reformer. The reason Calvin's name comes up is primarily because of this individual. Max Weber. Max Weber published this book, The Protestant Ethic in the Spirit of Capitalism, in 1904, now Weber, who was neither an economist nor a theologian, uh, was was uh, intrigued by the by from his observation that capitalism seemed to thrive the most uh, in Northern Europe, and particularly those countries that were not only Protestant but heavily Calvinist. <clears throat> And so he essentially reaches the conclusion and and argues in this book, there's more to the book than this, and I'm going to treat it more simply probably than I should, but that, um, that Calvinism 
was at least partially responsible for the rise and spread of capitalism. In short, his argument uh, was this. Well, the main argument, there there are other sub-arguments, but one being that a Calvinistic view of predestination made it so that people want to make sure that their election was sure, that they were truly one of the elect. And one of the ways in which they sought to do that was by being blessed by God materially. That if they were prospering economically, then that meant God was blessing them, and they could then sort of uh, uh, sigh uh, relief that they were one of the elect, that they wouldn't be one of the elect if God wasn't blessing them. Okay. So, and this this thesis of his, this work of Weber, uh, kind of rocked the academic world. And you cannot discuss really economics, macroeconomics at least, um, without bringing up this book and his thesis. Now, scholars throughout the 20th century have taken aim at his thesis and have essentially disproven the bulk of it. One, they show that um, capitalism uh, did not originate with Protestantism or much less Calvinism, that you can trace capitalism at least back to the Catholic Italian states of the uh, 11th and 12th centuries. If not, you can go further back in the minds of some. Of course, theologians have pointed out that Weber had a flawed view of Calvinistic uh, doctrine of predestination, Uh, that uh, uh, those who embraced the predestination uh, would not necessarily see uh, material prosperity as a sign of being one of God's uh, elect. But despite uh, these and other defects in Weber's thesis, he and his work are still very much a part of the conversation. And that's because scholars have continued to confirm his broader suspicion that Protestant beliefs and practices did indeed contribute to the development of capitalism. It wasn't solely responsible for them or even primarily responsible for it, but did contribute to it. So various scholars ranging from academic economists, like uh, Stanford's Nathan Rosenberg, to popular historians like Neil Ferguson have identified uh, as Protestant contributions to capitalism everything from providing the moral system needed for a capitalistic system to to function effectively all the way to simply Protestantism promoting literacy and separation of church and state which also helped to to develop and accelerate uh, capitalism. So when it comes to the Reformation and economics, it's clear that what happened there theologically, what happened there ecclesiology uh, with the church had an effect on economics. We see that with Weber's thesis. Now the other thing about the Reformation, for our purposes, is that just as Christendom fragmented with the Reformation, so did the Christian view of economics. And just going back to that that uh, chart, <clears throat> I don't, that we, the very first chart where you see that spectrum. Well, that's, that spectrum comes into play again because as you have the development of various Protestant denominations and sects and, and 
like I said, Christendom fragments, you'll find in some of those fragments uh, Christians uh, who who hold to positions all along that spectrum. Right? And so I've, I was struggling with how do I deal with with that this post-Reformation approach to economics by Christians, and so it, I decided to rely on uh, the work of another. Uh, historian, uh, Stuart Davenport, who wrote this book, Friends of the Unrighteous Mammon. Now, in this book, he's focusing on American Christians. But the categories he uses, I think, can apply to sort of all post-Reformation Christians, and so I'm going to use them. And so when it comes to sort of the Christian view of economics, after the Reformation, I'm going to put people in one of these three categories. Either they're contrarians, clerical economist or pastoral moralist. And this is the last part of the talk. So if we, we can get through these three things, we'll be good and get to, to dinner. Okay, so <clears throat> we'll start with the contrarians. These are the, the critics of capitalism, those who would, who would find themselves on that end of the spectrum leading towards communalism or socialism or you know, sharing things in common, planned economies with the government controlling um, most things, not all things. Well, who were some of the contrarians? <clears throat> well, right off the bat, beginning of the Reformation, one of the first groups to come out of the Reformation, the Anabaptist, <clears throat> and their economic view typically fell into this contrarian category. Anabaptist leaders questioned the legitimacy of private property. They advocated either sharing one's surplus or sharing all possessions. In fact, not only did some early Anabaptist, you know, that was their economic view, but some early Anabaptist not only expected that for Christians, you know, to share things in common, but wanted to impose that on all of society that Christians were obligated to sort of force others to live under this biblical economic model as they saw it. Now that they gave up on imposing that after the, um, the failure of the Peasants' Revolt uh, in Germany and the Munster uh, Rebellion. So after that, Anabaptists tended to look inward, tend to apply these principles only to themselves, And they asserted that uh, Christian community, those in a Christian community, are to live communally and avoid entanglement in the economic system that prevailed in what they called the kingdom of Satan, that they were not to have anything to do with that. So, for instance, the Swiss brethren, in their confessions of faith, uh, asserted that Christians would engage only in honest hand labor, that to engage in trade or commerce... Was, was entangling you in the kingdom of God, or I mean, uh, uh, the kingdom of Satan, or Satan's economic system. <clears throat> now, not all Anabaptists um, held things in common. Mennonites, for instance, uh, would, from, from their uh, origins forward, were willing to engage in the outside economy some, 
But a good number of, of Anabaptists, such as the Hutterites, completely refused to do so. So since the 16th century, Hutterites have lived communally, sharing all of their material resources and maintaining as much isolation from the world as possible. Today, there are over 50,000 Hutterites in America living in self-contained colonies. The biblical model presented in Acts 2, where the people had everything in common and distributed it according to to need, is the theological background in forming their view of an appropriate Christian economic system. So... But as with Catholic monasticism, this sort of Protestant communalism has been in the minority, right? It has only attracted a small number of adherents. The more common form of Christian anti-capitalism would be found in things like the Christian socialism movement, the social gospel movement, liberation theology. <clears throat> and so we'll, for the sake of time, we'll, just, we'll skip some of this. Uh, the individual who is oftentimes credited with sort of starting a, a Christian socialist movement was uh, Saint Simon with his book, uh, The New Christianity in 1825, uh, a French Catholic who basically argued that the church should work together with the government <clears throat> for the good uh, of the poor. And that out of, out of his writings and this movement, you get Christian socialist parties popping up throughout Europe in the uh, late uh, 1800s, early 1900s. Then you have the uh, Washington Gladden and uh, Walter Rauschenbusch, two American theologians, Rauschenbusch being a Baptist, starting, developing what we call the social gospel movement. Both of them pastors, Gladden, uh, pastor of the First Congregational Church of Columbus, Ohio. Rauschenbusch, pastor of the Second German Baptist Church in Hell's Kitchen, New York City. Uh, Rauschenbusch, for instance, uh, in his Christianity and the Social Order, skipping to that second book, said this, that socialism, this quote, socialism offers the most thorough and consistent economic elaboration of the Christian social ideal. <clears throat> so if you want to know which economic system is the most Christian, in his mind it was socialism. The Another manifestation of this contrarian view would be the rise of liberation theology. Um, the, the father of that Theology is oftentimes viewed as being Gustavo Gutierrez. His uh, Theology of Liberation, published in 1971, asserts that Jesus came to preach good news to the poor and to say that in God's kingdom they will no longer be poor. But the Theology of Liberation is that Christians are to seek to create God's kingdom here and now. And so Christians should dedicate all their efforts to ending practices and destroying structures that keep people in poverty uh, today. And then a somewhat modern uh, example of this contrarian view was with uh, Ron Sider's uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, someone from a Mennonite background um, who didn't promote necessarily socialism but um, could fall into this 
camp. Okay. So we'll skip to the, the clerical economist. And we'll skip through some of them as well. Now, the overly, overly simplistic summary of this group is that they are Christians who viewed free market capitalism <clears throat> uh, as being consistent with Protestant Christianity. And just like one example of how, okay, what is it, how you make this correspondence that free market capitalism corresponds with Protestant Christianity? An example I want to give you comes from Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. Where Smith says this It is not from the benevolence of the butchers, famous quote of his, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. So you want to get uh, bread and uh, beer and meat from the butcher, brewer, and the baker, you're not hoping for their benevolence. You're relying on their self-interest, that they're going to provide you those things because you're going to provide them with something in exchange. So, Well, Protestants saw this as consistent with the doctrine of man's fallenness. Man is fallen, you expect him to be self-centered. And an economic system based on the true nature of man is most likely to succeed, most likely to work efficiently. And that capitalism is based on the Protestant view of man. In this particular case, that man is fallen. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Francis Wayland may be a name that's familiar to you that he was a Baptist leader here in America. He was um, well, pastor of the first Baptist church in America, in Providence, Rhode Island. Pastor of the first, uh, president of the first Baptist college in America, what is today Brown University. His textbook, Elements of Moral Science, basically um, echoed what we just said, that he he portrayed Protestantism as corresponding to free market capitalism. <clears throat> In the Catholic Church, under Pope Leo XIII, who issued a, a monumental encyclical entitled uh, Of the New Things in 1891, that in doing so, he sort of put the Catholic Church, at least for a time, in this category. So his encyclical in 1891 is viewed as the high watermark of the Catholic Church's um, championing of private property. So in this uh, document, Leo condemned socialism outright, uh, defended the holding of private property, and said, Quote, nature confers on man the right to possess things privately as his own. The right of private property should be regarded as sacred, he said. Okay. Now skip uh, documents from the Russian Orthodox Church and Pentecostals. But we'll say this about Pentecostals, that there's not a kind of Pentecostal economic theory or approach to economics. But what I found is theologians saying <clears throat> Pentecostals are the religion of free market capitalism, in the sense that 
we kind of emerged with the rise of free market capitalism, and we have a kind of a free market capitalistic outlook that um, that for Pentecostals <clears throat> as a as a global religion and a new global religion, we've had to compete, and we've done what we could to compete against established religions or unbelief. In that sense, we kind of mirror free market economics. And also, they would say their, their theology of uh, blessing, the kind of the prosperity gospel, goes along with, with free market economists. So they would be in that clerical economist category. So now we'll skip to uh, pastoral moralist. These are those who fall in the middle of that spectrum, anywhere between the two extremes. Simply, under Pope uh, Pius XI, who was Pope during the Great Depression, the Catholic Church sort of goes back to to <clears throat> to more moderate position on things like private property and wealth. So I won't go through through all the details because of because of time. <clears throat> kind of a Protestant who falls into this category, Abraham Kuyper. So let me park here for just a moment. The Calvinist theologian who served as the prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. His uh, biographer, James Bratt, said that Kuyper's economic view can be viewed, can be called a third way, that he sought a third way beyond capitalism and socialism. <clears throat> so that, that he advocates private property on one hand, but denounces capitalism on the other. That uh, Kuyper declared that free market economics is contrary to Christian compassion and makes the possession of money the highest good and sets one man against another. But at the same time, Kuyper was opposed to greater government regulation of businesses, saying that it is the strong and the wealthy who run government, and they tend to manipulate the system for their own good. And so if you give them more power to regulate uh, the economy, they'll just um, abuse it. So where did, where was, what was Kuiper's economic view? Well, again, for the sake of time, I'll have to be overly simplistic. But in short, he, he just said, I have no faith or little faith in either the free market or the government. <clears throat> I'm going to criticize both from a Christian perspective and not fall completely in one camp or the other. Okay, so that's the American counterpoint, counterpart to, to Kuiper would be uh, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr who started off in the social gospel movement, but towards the end of his life embraced what he called the prophetic stance on economics, where he said, I'm in neither camp, and I will identify the flaws from a Christian perspective of every economic system. Okay, so we got through that. Now, for my con uh, conclusion, <clears throat> So as I, as I sort of surveyed history, the history of Christianity and economics, so bear with me here in this last part. <clears throat> and, I mean, we skipped a lot. 
not just here, I mean, we skipped a lot just in the, even in what I had prepared. Um, <clears throat> many individuals, many movements and groups not even mentioned. But what I, what I kind of saw when I reflect on it and see where we're at today is a couple of things. Number one, where we're at today economically when it comes to Christian economic views is that generally speaking, Christians, with rare exceptions, are at the point where we all seem to agree Christians should be seeking to shape economics, should be engaged in culture and in society. That wasn't always the case. That's somewhat of a new phenomenon. I mean, that you even now, I'll skip ahead to this, have, have Southern Baptist, you know, saying, yeah, we, we need to get involved in political matters. And I say that because typically Southern Baptists have had a tradition, have had a, a reputation for being apolitical. Hey, our focus is on eternity, on saving souls. And what's going on in politics doesn't concern us very much. <clears throat> And so when you, by the time you get to this resolution in 1984, and SBC says differently. They recognize the importance of, of Christian involvement. Um, and so I think that's somewhat of a new phenomenon. Uh, that certainly wasn't the case with the early church fathers before Constantine. They had no interest, no, no prospect of influencing the economic uh, policies of the empire, right? And you see it after the Protestant Reformation, Anabaptists and others isolating themselves from, uh, from society. Mm. But now I think most Christians embrace uh, engagement. So the question then is, simple, is this. And this is Christians have to say, well, what system is best then? If we're dedicated to being involved in the political sphere, in the economic sphere, and to do so for the good of others, what is going to most help others? For instance, what's going to help people get out of poverty? Then that's, that's of course, that's where we find ourselves. And I know this is no great revelation to you, but it's my way of sort of kind of summing up the, the, the survey that, uh, for instance, in this particular book that just came out in 20, uh, 2015, uh, Ryan McElhenney, who's a um, uh, historian at Providence Christian College, you know, basically says in the introduction to this book, Christians will have to answer for their support of a system, meaning capitalism, that crystallizes possessive individualism, fractures families, and creates poverty. So in other words, Christians are going to engage culture, seek to make the world better, in addition to preaching the gospel. <clears throat> They'll then you need to reject capitalism. You need to reject uh, work against it. Why? Because it does these things. It, it creates poverty. We don't want people to be poor. Right. Well, then you, of course, you can find Christians who take an opposite view. It won't be hard to do. But uh, a real notable example of that, we'll end with this. Rodney Stark uh, concludes his book, The Victory of Reason, this way. <clears throat> where he says, uh, without... A theology committed to reason, progress, and moral equality. He's talking about Christianity here. Today, the entire world would be about where non-European societies were in, say, 1800. A world with many astrologers and alchemists, but not scientists. A world of despots, lacking universities, banks, factories, eyeglasses, chimneys, and pianos. A world where most infants do not live to the age of five, and many die in childbirth. 
a world truly living in dark ages. The modern world arose only in Christian societies, not in Islam, not in Asia, not in a secular society, there having been none. So what's Stark saying? Christianity, in partnership with the capitalism that it produced, has made the world a much better place. And his argument is, you know, if you don't believe me, then think about what the world would be like without Christianity and capitalism. And and the picture he paints for you, whether or not you believe it or not, is this picture of of no chimneys, (laughs) of no eyeglasses, and of uh, despots and such. And so that's where we find ourselves. This whole survey of of uh, history of uh, Christianity and economics is we've gotten to a point where we believe Christians are to engage the world, to shape it, but now we need to decide what the dispute is, is uh, what, uh, what policies do we embrace, do we believe best help get us uh, where we want to be as a society, a society where as few people as possible are poor, a society where people are prospering and flourishing. I will end there. And I'm sorry to keep you uh, long. I tried to get through it as quickly as possible. But thank you for your attentiveness.